0: What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of Behind the Facade. I am your host, Gavin J. Gallagher, and on this podcast, I explore the mental and emotional game often playing out subconsciously, both in your mind and the mind of everyone else in the real estate or property investment market. The key to success in this game is to master your mindset and behavior, to take control of your thoughts, your emotions, and most importantly, your ego. Welcome to the show. Guys, real quick before we begin, Just want to ask you a quick favor. If you can, please stop what you're doing and leave a review for the podcast. Whatever platform you're listening in on, if you can give us a five star or whatever the highest rating is, it would be fantastic. And even better, if you found it useful in any way, please write that down on a very brief review if that's possible makes such a difference to how the podcast is received out there and pushed out on various platforms. That's all, nothing else to ask. Now let's get on with the show. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Behind the Facade podcast. This is coming to you live from the Frascati Centre in Blackrock here in Dublin. And the reason I'm doing it is I'm out of the office today. It's the beginning of the month, so I like to spend the first of each month working on plans, strategic plans for the rest of the month and the rest of the quarter, given it's the beginning of a new quarter as well. This week I am speaking with a guest and this guest is Raquel Aprizio and she has a company called Mars Design based in the UK. The reason why I'm speaking with Raquel is because she is interior designer and an interior architect. She's done a lot of projects for uh, landlords and investors property investors so what I am uh, speaking to her about is really the idea of getting your head around the importance of design when you are creating a lot of people will think you know I'm a landlord this is a HMO don't need to spend any money on this I'll just kind of do it cheap and cheerful Raquel actually pushes back on that concept and she's worked on a number of projects for a lot of big big companies but she's also done a lot of projects for some smaller HMO uh, landlords who have a limited budget. And so she is applying similar standards in design and stuff like that. I think it's a well worth um, listening to this interview with Raquel. Raquel Aparicio, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you so much, Kevin, for having me here.
0: I hope I got the pronunciation correct. Perfect. <laughs> perfect. I'm, I'm like delighted to hear
1: Portuguese.
0: That. <laughs> well, this is it. So in terms of getting straight into it for the for the listeners who are listening, we have a quite an international audience. And I always like to start with a little you, Raquel, you're from Portugal, but you're actually living in the UK. So tell us where you're living what you're doing at the moment, and, uh, and and just a little bit about yourself.
1: Yeah. So I'm Raquel. I'm the founder of Mara Design. I run a, a studio, an interior design studio, that is just focused on property developers and investors. And we help investors to create beautiful homes Um, that their tenants absolutely love living in it or in other hands also helping um, investors flipping properties in like super fast because they just look stunning but always having the concern of a developer's budget so you know always having that in mind Uh, my background I am Portuguese I saw the architecture and I kind of then specialized on interior architecture when I'm after qualifying, moved to China.
0: Big- oh wow, that's a big <laughs> that's a big move.
1: Yeah, uh, well, I guess that at that point in life, I was like, I want to travel in China and you know, uh, go to Thailand, and go here and go there, and I thought that strategically, that would be a very good decision. But would I know now that it would actually shaped all the rest of my year's professional career and goals that I have in life? No, I was just there for the party and the beach and traveling. But the truth is that uh, when I was there, I was exposed to great projects. I worked in um, various different casinos, so I did a lot of gaming, uh, high-end and mass gaming, which is a completely different world uh it's like the budgets
0: the budgets are huge yeah
1: budgets are amazing but the thing that i think i've learned there is the speed of the process so we literally did from concept to turnkey a six months project that was like for i don't know like uh let's say around 10 um 10 rooms that would be the junkers so basically um catering for probably more than 100 people at the same time gaming so it was it was crazy it was mad but that gave me loads of experience and then at the same time we did I did a lot of projects on uh, F&B which was great because you know restaurants and bars and all of that when you're in Asia it's a different level so um, it was yeah that was great and, and tell me,
0: before we move, go forward, I mean, would you would you recommend to anybody oh, yeah. finishing college to travel?
1: Oh, yes. Yes. And,
0: and is there. And, and so you went to China. Now, Did you know anybody in China? Did you have a contact that you because I mean, yeah. it's quite a language barrier. And a well, well, barrier. well, well,
1: well, hold on, hold on. So I went to Macau. Macau is a former Portuguese colony. And actually, I did my primary school when I was a kid. There because my dad was in the military and he was moved there, so we were kind of all moved with him. So I spent from uh I, it was like um four, I think I was four or five until I was nine studying there in Portuguese at that time, Portuguese and English at the same time. Uh, and I guess that gave me the Asian bug to always go back. And and I love traveling, so you know it was like perfection, but I do recommend that people should travel after uni. I think being exposed to different cultures, um, different foods, different smells, different everything. Um, and especially if, if you're, a des- well, not only if you're a designer, but if you're a designer, it just enhances your creativity. You kind of see things in a completely different way. So yes, I mean, travel, travel, travel.
0: Yeah, it's, I think it's great advice. I did the same. And it's, um, it's funny because I was very, very busy with my own work and my own career and stuff like that. And then the recession hit in 2007, 2008. And yeah. I can remember sort of seeing this starting to happen. And I remember thinking, I'm out of here. I want to be out of the country. I don't want to go through this whole recession here in Ireland. And so I was in the middle of this big project in Spain. And uh, now it didn't work out very well for me, that project. However, I don't regret the decision to actually travel and, and, and spend years abroad and, you know, opening my eyes to different cultures and things like that. Um, Raquel, in terms of how many years did you spend in China or Asia? In, yeah, or so
1: I went for a year and in the end I stayed eight.
0: Wow, eight years. So you've got, <laughs> you got, you you went over just to travel and you ended up getting a job and, and getting yeah, a better job. Yeah. A, yes. And, and
1: yes, so in Portugal, similar to what you do here when you qualify as an architect, you, here you have the part 2 and 3 until you're finally an architect we do the whole course and then we have an uh, internship year so then i um i tried to get an internship over there so i stayed for it one year so working and also traveling um and then after that recession hits as well so i stayed there because i thought well there's no point in me going back to europe because i'm not going to find any job and also I love this, so I kind of loved being exposed to so many different things at the same time, so I decided to stay. And and it was great. It literally shaped everything that I do today. Uh, I, you know, people don't believe when they see casinos and the hotels and all the finishes that they look super high-end and like super luxurious. And then in the end, they're all like, um, like laminates that are glued into an MDF board with a 3M in the middle and that's it. And you're thinking, oh my God, it's super luxurious. But in the end, it's like super easy to make.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's really interesting. And and that's some of the stuff that we're going to get into in terms of uh, the, the stuff that you do for private clients. But just before we, we move to that, you spent eight years in Asia. And then what did you did you move to the UK? Uh, yeah. What yeah. was the what was the motivating factor to move back in the direction of the UK?
1: Well, I wanted I got to a point. The thing is, living in Asia is wonderful, but after eight years and it was so, so fast paced because literally I used to work almost every day, including Sundays, that I used to go to the office just to, you know, just to do the emails that I didn't have time to do. And I thought, oh my God, this is becoming a bit too crazy. And I thought to myself, no, nope, it needs to change. Uh unfortunately, I got sick at that time. And I just, I was alone in in Asia and I thought if something happens to me, uh, my family is not close by, so I need to change this. And I think that was like the kicking force that made me uh, move to the UK. Um, Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And then when I moved to the UK, um, I actually got hired by one um, architectural practice and they were doing the four seasons behind Tower Hill okay. that was an investment from um from China as well. so the main investor was Chinese um, and they thought that it would be a good connection to have someone that had worked on that part of the world into the project. And when I kind of started in that project, we were just doing uh, the service accommodation. And then it kind of branched out to the rest of the property. So I did 40 apartments for them, the whole thing wow. of that. expanded. Yeah. Uh, it expanded,
0: then, yeah. Yeah. expanded quickly.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And then it was all, you know, front of house areas, the hotel bedrooms and all, you know, the specifications, the finishes and coordinating with the suppliers and the joiners and this and that. And because um, Trinity Square, it's a listed building. So literally every time we tried to dig a hole, there was a Roman something there.
0: Wow. Okay. So
1: it was very complicated project, but it was amazing. And I think that if I I didn't have all the experience I had in China, I would never have been able to deal with that project here in the UK. Because so, yeah. the,
0: work, the workload was just so heavy and the fast-moving pace. Yes,
1: but also the knowledge that I gained from all the things that I had experienced in China and how to kind of use them here in, and on this project specifically, so and and we had a lot of when I was in China, I did the whole like furniture uh, packages as well, everything bespoke. So the same I had to do for this project, and you know it's like it was two hundred ninety six keys plus the forty apartments plus all the front of house areas, and we had to bespoke everything, and it's like bespoking to the UK size standard of people because it's different than in China, so everything was literally. Tailored to the millimeter.
0: Wow. And, t- and like, I mean, it, that sounds like a dream job working on a big hotel, plush, luxurious, luxurious um, with, with huge budgets and things like that. Uh, but today you don't work uh, with endless budgets and stuff like that. So do you find it more challenging to work on the big budget stuff or more challenging to work on the low budget where you have to make that, you know, the pound go all the all the amount, you, know, you have to just find strategies to make it go further and to make it look as if you've put a huge amount of budget in when maybe you don't have a huge budget to spend. Yeah.
1: I, I think both have their own challenges. It's not one is bigger than another one, because once you have a big budget, um, there are other problems that might arise. When you have a small budget, um. It's all about the look that the investor or or what we propose as the studio to the investor and how to achieve that on the budget. So there are various techniques that we use to try to achieve that. Uh, Obviously, it also depends on the um, investment strategy and the goal, Um, because, for example, if you're doing flips, and you want to achieve a higher end. So, for example, kitchens and bathrooms are things where you're going to spend more of your money. Um, whereas, for example, on an, on an HMO, it would be more on the bedrooms. Maybe en-suites are not as, you know, um, I wouldn't say not as nice, but they're always quite small and, you know, th- most people think about that as an afterthought, which we don't, but they do think. So it's kind of where to allocate your money and try to replicate the design that you're intending, but in a cost efficient way. So there are ways to do it, but it's a case by case solution uh, option, I would say. Yeah.
0: And tell me, so you moved from big hotels, the luxury hotels, you didn't go straight into private, uh, private work, you were doing some Uh, high-end houses as well, I understand. Yes. What is that like in terms of, uh, you've got very demanding clients, I would imagine, when you're doing high-end houses. Tell us some of the experiences that you have with that. Yes.
1: Um, I have to admit, because I was kind of born and raised in the hospitality uh, world, to me, anything that it's a project that it's going to get, that has an investment goal, I think that's the way to put it, it's what really rocks my world. I love it. Even if it's a you know, small investment, big investment, doesn't matter. That's what I love. So to me, working with high-end residential private clients, it's a learning curve, but it's it's really not for me. I, it, It's not the thing that really wakes me up every day thinking, yes, it's going to be a great day. So, yeah. And I think the thing is, um, when you get to high end private clients, their expectations um it's it it is quite complicated because it's not the same as when you have a budget or you have uh, an investment goal so it's very much emotional um and and you know and they get all the families involved and the the husband and the wife and the mother and the the, all of them and sometimes it can be a bit too much and too overwhelming and also i think you know i'm i'm a because i probably have traveled a lot and i know kind of you know, the world and how people live and all of that. It really shocks me. Like for example, if someone puts a huge tantrum over a twenty K dining table. I mean, yeah. I I don't maybe you can't relate. I can't you can <laughs> it off, but I just I I think like, you know.
0: Yeah, uh, demanding, demanding rich clients are not always the easiest to work with. Uh, and I, I've had that experience.
1: <laughs> and the funny thing is that you would think, oh, because people have a lot of money, they actually think, oh, let's just spend it all. No, no, no. They're actually quite conscious, but they know exactly where they want to spend their money. And then whenever they're, you know, they have an eye for something that they absolutely love, then pockets are open and then you can spend. But in other ways, they are very much as a developer that it's on a budget because I mean successful people and rich people as well they've done all the work and all the steps and you know they have everything you know scheduled and all of that so I suppose they apply that in a way to their personal lives with a bit of emotion
0: yeah yeah um, in terms of I mean you made the leap to creating your very own business and like yeah. can you just tell us prior to making that leap to, to a lot of people that is a big step and it's it's quite a nerve wracking step because you're going from having your, you know, an income that you can rely on to suddenly you've got, your are responsible now for generating your own income. What was going through your mind at that transition point? Did you already have uh, a book of clients that you could kind of rely on or how did you make this trans- transition?
1: So um, I, when I was at, before I moved fully into my design, um, I I was doing my work, but I wasn't I wasn't fulfilled. I was at that time I was working a lot with private clients and when COVID hit, hospitality literally went for a huge dip and all the projects kind of stopped uh for obvious reasons. Uh and no one knew what was going. And and I wasn't, I, I just I didn't like what I was doing. Um and at that time I started to go to before COVID to property um, network events and starting to know people and starting to talk to people. And actually uh, when I was there, I used to say, Oh yeah, I'm an interior architect. Oh, okay. So I have a question for you. And then suddenly people started asking me questions and emailing me, Oh, can you help me with this? Can you help me with that? And I thought, hold on, this is actually what I like to do. Uh, And I do think that there's a lack of people that provide this, type of service um in in a proper way from start to end from concept through all the technical drawings, all the furniture selection, like the whole process. Do it, do it as if it was a little hotel. So I I started to network more and then suddenly people say, oh, do you want to design my HMO? And I'm like, okay, let's do this. And I just got back my joy,
0: I suppose. That's a lot. There's a, there's a lot to be said for it. And a, and a lot of the time, it's not necessarily financially driven. It's the fact that that spark of joy is there. And even if it like and maybe it doesn't, but it, if it did mean a step down. That's not the worst thing in the world if you've got some joy in your work again.
1: No, no, no. And I guess I did it in a way that I transitioned. So then I started doing my job, job. And then my um my MAR design work, let's call it this way. But again, as I was telling you, like I had to wake up every day at 4 30 in the morning to ensure that the projects were running. And then I could actually do my work. And then I would come back and I have a family as well. So then, you know, see my family, talk to my family and then kind of hide the again, do a little bit more work, go to bed. Uh, and I got to a point that I, I it was last last year, yes, last year that I had it was quite funny. I handed my notice on the 25th of April. And the 25th of April, it's a very important day for Portuguese because it's the end of dictatorship and <laughs> the beginning of freedom. <laughs> so
0: that's I thought, what it felt like for you <laughs>
1: <laughs> so I thought you know this is a great day to set myself free and go fully on the business and that was what I did and I kind of don't regret I I absolutely love what I do like for example yesterday I came back from Leeds I arrived at three thirty in the morning but with a heart full because we installed a beautiful HMO it just looks stunning and you know I'm happy with that
0: well, HMO is something that I want to get into because the, certainly the, the people that I am coaching, a lot of them are interested in doing HMOs. Now, in the UK, you have a highly regulated HMO sort of sector. Here in Ireland, there's zero regulation to it. So it would be an awful lot easier to do HMOs in Ireland than it would be in the UK. But tell us like, some of the insights from your perspective as a designer, because I typically... And and of course, you know, the interpretation could be wrong, but typically people see HMO as being cheap and cheerful and it's, you know, find a house, subdivide it up into rooms and rent it out and don't spend any money. But that would be the wrong approach. Mm. You take a totally different approach. Tell us about your approach to it and yes. what, what success you've seen for your clients.
1: Yeah, I I mean, when I have people that come to me and say this, I kind of twitch inside internally. And I think, no, this is not the way that you're going to achieve your success and maximize your investments as well. Because, you know, HMO, although it's highly regulated here uh, in the UK, I mean, if you would compare that to, for example, having the background of hospitality, uh, I don't think it's that regulated. And I also think that, you know, once, uh, because we have all this Equality Act, uh, in the hotels, when that kind of goes into the HMOs, it's going to be a big problem for the landlords. But that's a separate discussion. So, I mean, it, it's it. People should take HMO regulations very seriously because th- there's a reason why there why things are there, and you can't really bring to the market houses that are subdivided in such a way that you have only, well, you can because it's regulated, but like six square meters, including an en suite. It's just like, it's ridiculous. No one wants to live there. And the only tenants that people attract uh, for those properties are the bad tenants, let's say, and you have a huge turnover of people coming in. So our way is that we look into a property and we advise how many rooms we think um that property should cater for or, for example, if we're going to the loft or we're going to extend, how can we maximize that but bring comfort to people? So we look into the internal layout, we look into the furniture layout, we look into all the small power, um, the lighting and how everything is located so that when you go into the space, it kind of makes sense and you almost – do things automatically and don't need to be looking for it. So literally as if you were going into a hotel room and you're like, oh, okay, this all works for me. So that's the same kind of approach that we do um the ergonomics projects. yes the- exactly exactly and looking into for example also on the communal areas it's not just you know just a kitchen and then you have a dining room and a sofa and it's all in the corner no 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 you need to have like proper circulation around it um, it needs to feel that people can sit at the table have space to go up and b- back and forth with the chair so it all it, it's it's almost like um, providing a space that it's not only just a space, but it's the experience of living in the space in the correct way. So that's it's, a, it's a
0: quality of life as well. Exactly. As, you know, yeah, It's not just a, a bed for the night.
1: Yeah. And the thing is that if, or most of our clients, when they follow this kind of recipe and our advice uh, at the end, when they look back at the property, how it was and how it is now, they go like, Oh my God, this is amazing. I could live here. I could move here. So, um, and, and the thing for them at the end is that they know that they're going to achieve also higher rents. Normally, it's always the top end of the market and they have tenants that want to stay there forever. So it's, you know, it's not it's not difficult once you understand all of this. And I do appreciate that for some investors, it, it is an investment to invest on an interior designer. Um, to help them with the process, but what you gain at the end is much more than if you just subdivide the property into zillion rooms that don't work, and that, you know, then you just have have the high turnover and all that. Yeah, you have, or you have voids, long-term voids, and, you know, that's not what you want. Yeah, yeah, Um, and
0: well, that is interesting. Tell me, do you find the uh, there's a lot of talk about sustainability nowadays and ESG and all that. And obviously, ESG is something that the bigger investors are focused on. Yeah. Uh, on the smaller scale and doing HMOs and stuff, have you seen that sort of creeping in to the requirements yet? Uh,
1: not yet. Not yet. And to be honest, um, you know, everyone wants to do a sustainable property but at the end now, with the increase of the building costs, I don't know if you're feeling the same. In, we are. Um, yes, we are. yeah. Uh, it, it is, you know, th- this is where actually having someone that knows what they are doing and how to make a look uh, or how to make a room look spectacular, but in the low budget can kind of help them out. Um, because if you're going for bigger developments, then it's fine, but the smaller ones now, I think they're having huge impact with the rising costs of, and also, and also lack of availability of builders, and builders literally can price whatever they want, labor, yeah, yeah, labor is just absolutely crazy. so yeah, so in terms of I mean,
0: you've set up your own business, you're now out on your own. Tell us some of the you know habits and uh, you know the, the, the behavior that is allowing you to achieve what you want to achieve. Is there any particular kind of strategies that you've adopted that you think are particularly? helpful.
1: Yeah. So I wake up every day quite early and I always do a workout. Uh, the reason why I do this is that it's my me time that I'm just focused and every the rest of the world is kind of asleep and I'm just there thinking about it. I, actually, I'm not thinking, I'm just concentrated on the moment. Um, and I always, always do that. When I finish my workout, I always do a little bit of um, um, meditation. Because I think it sets me off uh, for, for a day to be okay. And I'm, I'm like nice, regulated, calm and collect. And I know what I need to do, which is a great feeling. Um, and then I have my day. I try to always eat healthy. I, I'm not a sugar person. So I always try to look at what I eat because I'm a firm believer that you are what you eat. So that's kind of important,
0: yeah, big time. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I always listen to a podcast, at least one podcast a day, being it's a business oriented mindset or health podcast. I love it. And I think that everyone should do this. Um, and then I practice gratitude before going to sleep.
0: That's a nice one. Yeah. I I actually, I think that's a huge one because if you're, if you're just remembering what you're grateful for, it means that you go in a positive frame of mind to sleep. A lot of people can bring a lot of stress from their work to. To sleep. And then it's you know regurgitating inside your head overnight and things like that. And you you don't get a proper night's sleep. It's funny, you, all of the things that you, the ritual, I suppose, that you have for your day, it's, it's very similar to my own. And it's something that for the last two episodes, I've been talking about these kind of strategies and stuff. Um, have you got any clients, like repeat clients that you're working with on a regular basis? And like, is there any insights from their success that you've you've noticed and that you're you, you think is you know is worthy of trying to emulate?
1: Yeah well um I have well I'm very grateful for this let's just start saying this um I do have clients that come back to me to do their second HMOs which is great uh, and I think they really valued the whole experience because not only in terms of obviously achieving the higher rents and all of that, uh, they got also their properties when they went for a revaluation, it was much higher than what they were expecting. So that's great. But I think um, what they really liked, besides all the financial side of property and all of that, and their success towards going to the next HMO and the next HMO is that uh, they really enjoyed the process. Because it's not just like, oh, here you go, a design goodbye. I'll see you on your next HMO. It's the whole process of talking to the clients, talking to the builders, going to site. A project is never, ever, in my experience, going to go go smooth sailing. There's always an issue. Um, So it's kind of how you and the client react at the same time to that issue and how together you can tackle it. So I think that that's very important for them. And, And to know that if there's, something wrong they can always come back to us and say like oh can you help me with this can you help me with that so that's great this has been um what I've seen across all my clients that have come back and wanted to do this again um I have actually a funny story in one of my clients that we did six flats last year in London um the idea for him was to get he he bought a building that was like Halfway the construction sites, and construction site. oh, so abandoned construction sites. Abandoned, right.
0: Okay. Yeah.
1: So we had to, and it was literally like slabs and columns, and that was it. Nothing else. So we had to do go back to all the replanning of the internal layouts, selection of finishes, all of that, making it perfect. Um, and because we were aiming to sell these uh, flat sets, uh, high-end luxury um, type of, of approach, the, he was actually contacted by another investor that made him a proposal that he could not say no to it. And he ended up selling the whole building halfway through the construction, the refurb. Um, and the deal was that he had to finish everything to those same spec and level. And, and yeah, and that was great because it was something that we didn't expect we expected to finish the project and then he started selling one by one and flipping and, you know, doing the normal process, but no. So he was absolutely thrilled with this opportunity. He just yeah. finished the project, wrapped it, that's it. Done here, in here. one go. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. yeah. That's yeah. great. And it's it's funny, I, I'm just thinking back to, because I lived in London for a while and I can remember just in relation to what you're saying about spending money on an on an interior designer and you know whether it's worth it because i do know there will be hmo investors there'll be people that are starting out and they'll be thinking they're on a budget and they can't possibly afford an interior designer and i can understand you know we can all relate to yeah. budgetary you know considerations and stuff but just my insight i was in london i was staying in a hotel Uh, for one week. And I gave myself a week to find myself uh, a flat or an apartment that I could move into and spend the next couple of years living there. And uh, I I organized to meet an agent and the agent said, yes, we'll show you. And they had seven properties to show me. And so I went through seven properties, you know, where you go in the front door and, you know, this is in the kind of the the Victoria stroke Pimlico area in London and go in the front door you've got to climb like you know 12 flights of stairs to get to the flat at the top and all this kind of stuff some of it was really bad and some of it, you know you go in and you see like these old carpets and the you know worn out wallpaper and stuff and curtains that are kind of sagging and things and i looked at all of these and then the final one house no, flat number 7 they brought us into was brand new uh it was an old building but it was brand new the refurb and they had clearly gotten an interior designer because everything was color-coded the beds were made they had puffed up pillows and they had the white sheets and everything like that the sofa the the furniture was beautiful they had books in the shelves you know kind of just these coffee stand books and stuff and I can remember walking in and myself and my wife she's my wife now at the time we weren't married we just looked at each other and just went yes (laughs) (laughs) and it was that emotional Instant decision, like you know, you just know that this is the place, and that's the emotional reaction that good design can give you, as opposed to there was six other flats that I saw that day, and every single one of them didn't meet the standard I wanted. And then in a in a split second, I immediately knew. So that to me is you know explains the value of good
1: exactly. And you know that leads me to just quickly telling you this because. And whenever I have clients that come to me when they're flipping and they do like, oh, but should I get some furniture in or should I should I not dress the property? And I'm like, no, dress it. And they'll stage they it. Isn't that what you exactly. say? Yeah. They don't want to stage the property because they don't want to spend the money on that. But I mean, I it's it's millimeter seconds, people go in and they're like, Where, yes, I, Where I can I'm buying that it, sign? that's it. And it's a few years ago, I did uh, two schemes in uh, Chelsea Barracks. So one penthouse and one lateral apartment. And I remember that, well, for that developer, obviously, we had to go beyond expectations, right? Uh, But the funny thing was that we even managed to create a family with the grandparents, the parents and the kids to put on the photo frames. Because what we wanted was to people when they in the properties feel like, oh, this is my home already. And it's not my home. And those are, you know, little things and tricks that you can do to really stage your property to a level that people just don't want to leave.
0: Yeah, I know. I think that's a hugely important insight to kind of share with people because that's the the area that people think that they'll save money by not doing, by not sort of spending the money there. But I think a lot of the time, and obviously it depends on the location and the clientele yeah. and stuff that you can you're attracting. But at the end of the day, it's that emotional trigger that you're trying yeah. to set off that immediately gets people saying, "Right, I'll take it right now, this moment." Um, Raquel, I'm just looking at the time in terms of. Uh, can you just tell us, you know, are there any books that you would recommend, or any kind of thing in terms of, you know, improving people's awareness
1: of design standards and things like that? Um, In terms of design standards, it really depends on the area of investment, so it does really change from one area to another, so I wouldn't say that. I would say that books that deal with ergonomics are actually quite good, they can look quite tedious. Uh, Even like the traditional, you know, the Neffrenefs of this world. Yes,
0: the Neffren. I remember that.
1: Yeah, Yeah, but actually, even now I go back to it because it's it's like a Bible to me, if this makes sense. So that's actually quite a good recommendation. But in terms of more regulations, it's a bit complicated because it really depends on on um, where you you're investing. Of course, Um, Yeah, yeah. I think that you know. The best thing that actually it's not really books, but it is. It would be more try to go and uh, visit open days of other investors' uh, properties to see what level of um, properties they're bringing into and into the market and look at the details just don't walk the property which is oh it's a nice property but like really look at the details that you know the doors and the skirtings and the color schemes and and the finishes so so that triggers also ideas for your upcoming projects i think that's a really good thing to do and now that you know we can actually go and visit people in places so that would be very good to do if if there's the time to do that
0: and tell me, Raquel, the best advice you've received in your career to date, what would it be?
1: There's never a problem. There's always an opportunity. And that's how I always see it because...
0: yeah, Opportunism, opportunistic uh, and uh, an optimistic look outlook on things.
1: Yes, always, always. And even if, you know, a project goes... Um, downhill very quickly there's always something that you can do and you know I've learned that uh, when I was in China working because downhill was always like stress all the time um, and I remember my uh, my director at that time always saying to me, this is not a problem this is an opportunity so let's look at it in different ways and I kind of take that and yeah I apply it to every field of my life
0: that's great. I think that's a great way to finish up. Um, though, actually, there's one last question that I always ask uh, my, my guests, and that is, um, you know, you've got your own business now. You're running your own business. You've spent many years since you graduated. But if you were to have an opportunity to give some advice to young Raquel leaving university all those years ago, like what advice would you give yourself now? Is there anything different in the way you approach things now that than you did back then?
1: I think that, um, you know, especially in the design world, it can be quite tough. Um, So I would always say to listen, but always keep truth to your principles. and, um, And just, you know, keep, just stay on your path. Because whatever you want to achieve, it will come to you when the time is right. So believe in the path that you're taking and believe yes. in your own, your own
0: convictions. Trust the universe. Trust the universe. That's a great uh, way to finish up. Uh, so Raquel, if people wanted to learn more about you or connect with you, what is the best route to do that?
1: Well, they can contact me on social, so Facebook or Instagram, or they can go to our uh, website and drop us an email from there.
0: Brilliant. Okay, well, I'll share the link in the show notes. And this will be going on YouTube as well. So I'll put the the links in there. Raquel, thank you so much for your time today and all the advice.
1: No, thank you so much for having me here. It was great. Thank you.
0: Thank you for tuning into another episode of Behind the Facade. If you have any questions or topics you'd like me to cover in future episodes, please connect with me via the Facebook group that is called Behind the Facade Community. Alternatively, you will find me on social media. My handle is Gavin J. Gallagher. You can stay up to date with all of my content and the various projects I'm working on over on my website, gavinjgallaher.com. And while you're there, please do add your name to the Join My Tribe thing over on the right-hand side. This will ensure you're kept up to date via my weekly newsletter. All of these links are in the show notes below. That's all for now. I will see you guys in the next episode.